You can take your Bibles and turn along with me to the book of Ruth. We conclude our study of Ruth's life this morning. Ruth chapter 4. Most of us have probably, and perhaps in very recent days, looked at events in the world and maybe events in our own life and thought, what in the world, God, are you doing? So much seems to be going wrong and coming apart. That's certainly true in our world. Maybe it's true in your own life as well. You wonder, what in the world is God doing? Well, the book of Ruth has reminded us that God is always at work. Most of the times, behind the scenes. In ways that we can't fully detect. In ways that are hidden to us. But he is nonetheless at work. Working out his perfect purposes even in what seems to be the chaos of life. Among life's losses and life's sorrows, he is at work. He has a purpose. He has a plan, and he's bringing it about. The book of Ruth reminds us of the good news of God's redemption, the gospel of God's redemption, that God is actively pursuing his redeeming purposes in our lives, in all that takes place. It was true for Naomi. It was true for Ruth. It was true for Boaz. It's true for us. So let's close out this book. Let me read for us from Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, and I'll take us through the end of the chapter. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of Life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David." This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, in the midst of the chaos and confusion that our world seems to be in, we read a book 
like Ruth and are reminded that you are still in control. You are ordering the events of the world and of our lives to bring about your good and perfect purposes. That doesn't mean we won't experience great sorrow and loss. doesn't mean that we won't suffer, but it does mean that there is purpose in it. Redeeming purpose. So give us faith to believe that, to trust you, and to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want us to see three instances of God's gracious redemption as we close out this book. Three instances of God's gracious redemption in these closing verses of the book of Ruth. First of all, I want us to see a life redeemed from despair. We see in these in this whole book, really, a life redeemed from despair. God is redeeming lives from despair and hopelessness. The book of Ruth begins not with the story of Ruth. That's what we might expect. But with the story of Naomi. Look back with me at Ruth chapter 1. Verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Well, we know the story. Naomi's daughter-in-law Ruth returns to Bethlehem with her after the famine had passed. Naomi is coming home to Bethlehem. However, she's coming home empty-handed. She left with a husband and two sons. She's coming home with only a daughter-in-law, a foreign daughter-in-law at that. Her future seems bleak, and she knows it. And she is absolutely despairing. Look with me at Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. Through 21. Ruth 119. So they, Ruth and Naomi, both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Remember, that means bitter. Naomi's name originally meant pleasant, but she says, Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter for the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me i went out full but the lord has brought me back empty why do you call me naomi since the lord has witnessed against me and the almighty has afflicted me naomi's not the right name for me pleasant isn't the right name for me bitter is the right name for me 
Here is a woman who has come to the end of her rope. She doesn't see much left in life that is pleasant or hope-filled. All she can see is a life of struggling, poverty, and the harshness of a world without a man to care for her in those days. And so through a series of God's kind providence, we know the story, how it goes, and Naomi's shrewd planning, don't want to minimize that, Ruth and Boaz are joined together in marriage as Boaz becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Again, skip forward to Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. I just read it not long ago. So Boaz took Ruth, Ruth 4, 13, and she became his wife, and, she, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And so as the book of Ruth began, not with Ruth, but with Naomi, so the story and the book ends not with a spotlight on the story's namesake, Ruth, but on her mother-in-law, Naomi. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 4. Then Naomi took the child later him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. There is reasonable cause to wonder why we don't name this book Naomi instead of Ruth. Because it begins with Naomi, it ends with Naomi. Through the course of the story, Naomi's heartaches are turned to joy. Her many losses have been blunted and lessened by many gains. In her own words, she went out full, but she came back empty. And yet now, at the end of the story, quite unexpectedly, she sits with hands full once again. This time, her hands and her heart are filled with the gift of a precious grandson and a hope for tomorrow. Naomi has traveled that long distance from despair to hope. The women surrounding Naomi at this point in her life give words and give song, if, as it were, to renewed joy and hope that Naomi has found. Look at their chorus in Ruth chapter 4, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord. It's a psalm of praise, right? Blessed is the Lord who's not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi lost a lot. We shouldn't minimize that. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. She lost her daughter-in-law, Orpah. Her hope for an heir and her hope for any kind of a future that didn't include a deeply felt bitterness was non-existent. But here, by the end of the story, the Lord has restored her hope. 
through his gracious providence, Naomi has a daughter-in-law who's better than seven sons, a son-in-law who has both the character to do the right thing and the means to care for both Ruth and Naomi, and now a grandson. And the Lord has given her a grandson to carry on the family's legal line. Naomi's life has been redeemed from despair. Now, like Naomi, you and I may be faced with some great difficulties in this life. Loss of loved ones, a health crisis, the loss of a job or of a significant relationship. These losses are real, and they happen in this fallen world, and they happen to Christians who are otherwise obedient and following the Lord and doing what they know to be the right thing, and yet these losses happen to all of us. These losses are real, and so is the grief that comes with them, the grief that we feel. We may be tempted to say, like Naomi, don't don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. But nevertheless, the Lord's promises are always true. They were true in that moment of crisis in Naomi's life. When she felt like the Lord had dealt very bitterly with her. When she felt like the Lord had abandoned her, it wasn't true. The Lord's promises are always true, even in the midst of our losses. He promises to always be with us, to always be working for us, to always help us, and ultimately to redeem all of our sufferings and turn them into glory. He promises that the cross will one day Give way to the crown. Psalm 30, verse 11 says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope By the power of the Holy Spirit. How is hope restored? By trusting in God and His promises. By believing that He is good. That He is with us. That He hasn't forsaken us. That's how hope is restored. That's the long journey from hopelessness and despair to hope and joy. And God redeemed that in Naomi's life. He can in ours as well. The second instance of redemption is this. A family line redeemed from desolation. God not only redeems 
Naomi from despair, but he also redeems her family line from desolation. And that brings us to the story's epilogue. This genealogy that tracks all the way to the birth of King David. Now, Naomi was without a husband. She was without her sons. She was without an heir. This not only would have left her exposed and unprotected economically and socially, but it left her without the hope of a future family. It was the end of the line for her family tree. From her perspective, the branch of her family tree had been cut off. But God used the loyal love of Ruth and the loyal love of Boaz to turn Naomi's life and her future completely around. The lineage recorded here at the end of Ruth is through Boaz biologically. But it would have been understood that Boaz was legally standing in for Ruth's deceased husband. In this way, her deceased husband, Malon, and by extension, Naomi, are included in this new lineage which would eventually lead to the birth of a king. King David. And of course, we know it would also later lead to the birth of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Now, the genealogies of the Bibles can often seem quite pointless to us. It's like reading a phone book, except the names are harder to pronounce. Why list all these names? of people who don't seem all that important to the storyline of the Bible. What's the point? That's a pretty understandable response from us. Most of us have difficulty tracing our ancestry past a few generations at most. How many of us know the name of our great-great-grandfather right now without looking it up? Not many of us. As Americans, we're a melting pot of nations and ethnicities. For us, genealogies serve as kind of interesting tidbits of family history that help to shape a part of our identity and part of our family story. But biblical genealogies are far more important than that. Biblical genealogies are far more meaningful as they establish the historicity of key biblical figures and specifically the legitimacy of their role within the biblical storyline. This genealogy that comes at the end of Ruth established King David's unquestionable right to rule and showed God's providential orchestration of events to rescue, establish, and maintain this right to rule. This genealogy, all these names that begin in verse 18, span more than nine centuries and names only ten generations. The number ten signifies completeness and helps to aid in the memory. It's likely that some of these 
uh, names are selective, that perhaps some generations have been skipped for the sake of conciseness. Perez is first in the list because he is a descendant of Judah, son of Judah, and because he was the product of a kinsman redeemer, just like Obed was. Boaz comes in the seventh spot, a spot of honor and emphasis in lists like these. And then the list crescendo comes with David, the king of Israel, in the tenth spot. He comes last, but he is not least, right? That's the crescendo. And we see these genealogies repeated and expanded, of course, in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, culminating in the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. So I want to look briefly at each of these names, very briefly, highlighting a few of them for you, and then commenting on the significance of this for both the story of Ruth as well as the larger story of what God is doing. Perez is first. Perez was the son of Judah and Tamar. That is a scandalous story. Right? You don't, that's not the go-to story for family Bible hour at home. It's awkward. If we were writing the Bible, we'd leave that part out. There's no need to discuss that. That's a family secret. Well, it's in there. Not only is it in the Bible, (laughs) it's part of Jesus' story. It's part of his lineage. You may recall that Tamar actually married Judah's son, Er, E-R, who was wicked. And he was killed by the Lord. This left Tamar without a husband, And without an heir. Now Judah, her father-in-law, promised his young son to Tamar to be a kinsman redeemer, right? To fulfill his responsibility as the younger brother of the deceased and marry Tamar and produce an offspring. But when The younger son came of age. Judah failed to follow through on his promise and his commitment. So Tamar took matters into her own hands. She dressed up as a prostitute in order to lay with Judah. And Judah, being the upstanding guy he was, was down with that. And this is how Perez was conceived. I told you it wasn't a nice story. Perez's grandfather, of course, was Jacob. His great-grandfather was Isaac, and his great-great-grandfather was Abraham. So there is a thematic connection between Perez and Obed. You see the thematic connection? It's in being a kinsman-redeemer. Judah ended up being the kinsman redeemer through trickery and desperation on Tamar's part. Obviously, it's a very different story in the book of Ruth. That brings us to Hezron. Not a lot known about this Hezron. 
He was the father of the Hezronite clan that's mentioned in Numbers 26-21. He, along with his father, Perez, and his grandfather, Judah, and his great-grandfather, Jacob, went down to Egypt during the famine where God had providentially placed Joseph into that position of powerful leadership that would save the nation of Israel during that famine. Next, we come to Ram. Again, not much known about Ram, though he is mentioned in several other genealogies in Scripture. Probably born in Egypt and probably lived his whole life there. Aminadab, also born in slavery in Egypt. According to Genesis 6.23, he's the father-in-law of Aaron. Aaron married his daughter, Elisheba. They gave birth to Nadab and Abihu, who disobeyed the Lord and were killed. So Aminadab was their grandfather. Next is Nashon, son of Aminadab, brother-in-law of Aaron, uncle to Nadab and Abihu. He's in the fifth position of the genealogy. That would be a position of some prominence and importance and honor. He was the leader of the entire tribe of Judah during the exodus from Egypt, according to Numbers chapter 10. So he was a great and important leader. Judah being the tribe that would lead all the tribes and Nashon being the leader of the tribe of Judah. So the closest thing to a king, in a sense, in that time. Salmon. Is next. We don't know much about him. Sometimes he is referred to as Salma, S A L M A. But we know a lot more about his wife. His wife's name was Rahab. Remember her? Of Jericho? Rahab the harlot? Rahab who hid the spies? You can look up Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6 for that one. So Salmon marries Rahab, a Gentile harlot, who converts and repents and follows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Marries Salmon, this nice Hebrew boy, and together they have a son. And his name? Boaz. Boaz. Here we go. Now we're talking. That name sounds familiar. He is in the seventh position in this genealogy. That is the position of highest honor. And for good reason, as we've seen in the story that unfolds in the book of Ruth. Despite his mother's checkered past, he was a godly and honorable man. And that brings us to Obed, son of Boaz, grandson of Naomi. He is the grandfather of David. He had a son named Jesse, who in turn fathered eight sons living in Bethlehem. The most famous of them was David, of course, the youngest of Jesse's sons. Not probably the one like, most likely to be chosen as king over Israel. In 1 Samuel 16, 
As Samuel comes to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king over Israel, all the boys are lined up there, all eight of them. When they entered, 1 Samuel 16, 6, he looked at Eliab. Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is the guy. He's our, he's our dude. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David, of course, was the man God had chosen. The youngest. David, greatest king of Israel. David, who wrote many of the Psalms. David, under whose leadership Israel rose to its greatest height. And yet there's another name that's important to the story. Bathsheba. David, of course, saw Bathsheba bathing, wanted her for himself. He arranged for them to be together. She got pregnant from David. Having heard that, David begins to try to cover his tracks, has Bathsheba's husband killed in battle, murdered. Now, if we were going to write the story of the Messiah we no doubt would want to leave all those bad tidbits out of Jesus' lineage. Tamar impersonating a prostitute in order to have a child with her father-in-law, Judah. Rahab, the pagan harlot, being the mother of Boaz. Ruth being a hated foreigner from a pagan nation like Moab. David committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, and that child being Solomon, Solomon who has a thousand wives and ends up an idolater. No, we would want to sanitize the lineage of Messiah. But all these black sheep in the family are the true story of God's redemption. God was using the lives and stories of these very fallen, very sinful, very broken people to bring about his perfect plan of redemption. The sending of his son, Jesus, who, being a descendant of this fractured family, was nevertheless the sinless son of God, untouched and unstained by sin. Amazing, isn't it? And the story of Ruth fits right into that. Right into the flow of that unfolding family history that would ultimately lead to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God planned all along that many, many years after Boaz arranged to take Ruth as his wife at the gate of Bethlehem, you remember that scene, that Joseph, and his pregnant wife Mary would enter through that same gate at Bethlehem looking for a place to stay. God planned that Jesus would be born in a feeding trough not far from the very field where his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother Ruth had gleaned 
and where Boaz had taken special note of this stranger. The shepherds that came to witness Jesus' birth were tending their flocks in the same fields where David had tended his, and not far from where Boaz and Ruth met that quiet evening at the threshing floor. In putting Ruth and Boaz together, God was redeeming a family line from desolation. The branch of Naomi's family tree had been cut off and seemingly there was no hope, but with the Lord, there is always hope. Nothing is too difficult for God. A family line was restored and redeemed. A family line that would eventually produce the Messiah. Finally, this morning, let's look at a people redeemed from destruction. A people redeemed from destruction. Now, at verse 22, we see that the grand culmination of the book of Ruth is the name of Israel's great king, David. As we know from the rest of Scripture, David is not the high point of the story that God is weaving into history. We know from the rest of Scripture that a greater David is yet to come. Turn with me to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, 14. Talking about family trees and branches being cut off. Well, there's coming a righteous branch of David that will spring forth. Jeremiah 33, 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That is another name. The Lord is our righteousness for the Messiah himself. So Israel and Judah would become identified with their Messiah. So that they share a name. The Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu. In the Gospels, we know that Matthew and Luke, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, include their own genealogies. Both of these genealogies include, of course, David and all the names included in the genealogy of Ruth. You can find them there in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. But they go on to track David's lineage all the way to Jesus, the son of Joseph, and Mary. I mentioned to you that genealogies in the Bible are important because they establish a person's right to hold an office, 
a person's right to rule. And that's what the genealogies of Matthew and Luke do as well. They establishes Jesus' right to rule on David's throne. That Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of that prophecy in Jeremiah of a righteous branch of David. A coming descendant of David who would rule and reign in righteousness. And whose rule would have no end. Jesus, who was not only born King of the Jews, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, the King who was born first to serve and die, and then to rule. He would serve by giving his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to redeem a people from destruction. A people bound for hell. A people marred by sin and guilt. A people facing death physically and spiritually. Jesus accomplished this redemption on the cross. He died. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And now he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He's been given a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what we see in the book of Ruth is the gospel of God's redemption. The good news that God is behind the scenes actively bringing about his redeeming purposes in the world and in our lives. On a large scale and in detail. So we learn that God's grace in the book of Ruth is a redeeming grace. A restoring grace. Though Naomi and Ruth had both experienced significant losses and knew significant grief in their lifetimes, yet even in the midst of their grief, we see that God was at work doing things that Ruth and Naomi had no clue about. And even went to their grave not fully knowing the fullness of what God was accomplishing. Yet even in the midst of their grief, we see that God was at work, bringing about his redeeming purposes both for them and for countless generations to come. Likewise, through the finished work of Jesus, God is actively restoring our losses, giving joy in the midst of sorrow, mending what has been broken, Through faith in Jesus, God restores us to himself relationally and begins the work of restoring us into the image of his son, Jesus. And he is using everything in our lives to accomplish that purpose. That's the good news of God's redemption. That the good work that God has begun in us, he will complete it. That's God's promise to you and to me. As sure as he loves his son, so surely will he complete the work he's begun in us through his son. The world seems out of control. Your life may seem like it's going nowhere. You may feel like you identify more with Naomi at the beginning of the story than at the end of the story. But rest assured, God is at work. 
And he is a redeeming God. And he is redeeming our hurts, our pain, our losses, and our griefs for his purposes, which will achieve an eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are so trustworthy and faithful and you have shown yourself that time and time again in your word and in our lives. Help us to trust you and believe you when you say that you are for us. When you tell us that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will not abandon us, that even the hard things that happen into our lives, come into our lives, that they're for good purposes that refine us and make us more like your son. Father God, we thank you for your love, which was demonstrated perfectly in the sending of your son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for coming, for stepping into humanity and this broken story of fallen people, for living a sinless life and fulfilling all righteousness in a way we never could. So that you might die in our place and redeem us from the curse of the law, the curse of death, the curse of judgment. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Increase our faith, we pray. Amen.